all of you the evening. Is, is this microphone on? I think it is. Good to see all of you. We're glad to have you. We have uh, some folks here, some guests from Alabama, Arley, Alabama, and they sent me a text about a week or so ago, and they wanted to know if we were going to have our Bible study this evening because, of course, it's the 31st. <laughs> so I, t I, I, I told our congregation Sunday that there may be some folks that want to hang out with the witches and warlocks, but I want to hang out with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are definitely not going to cancel our Bible study over, over Halloween. Good to see all of you. We do have people who are out of town that are usually here, though. David and Leslie Roberts, we want to remember them. They're usually always here. And some others whom I apparently cannot think of at this time, but I'm glad to see you all here. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I've been using this as a text for the last couple of studies on this subject of the grace of God. John's Gospel, chapter 6. And just using one verse, is verse 37. John, chapter 6, and verse 37. All that the Father come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Now let's pray. Father, we are thankful through our Lord Jesus Christ that we are able to come here tonight and spend just a few minutes looking into your holy word. We ask you to Speak to us to give us an understanding of what we consider, that we might know the truth and not be ashamed of it. We're thankful for all you've done for us and pray that you will bless our meeting together this evening. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for his sake. Amen. All right, for the sake of some of you who may not have been here, we're using the word, the English word grace and making an acrostic out of it. The G in grace is goodness. R in grace is righteousness. The A in grace is atonement. The C is covenant. And the E, which we have dealt with now for the last, uh, this is our third study, I believe, is election and everyone who is thirsty. You'll notice in this verse, the John 6, 37 verse, that the Lord Jesus, who is in a conversation here with some of the Pharisees, and he says to them, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He says in the verse just before that, you have seen me and you believe not, but all that the Father gives me they will believe me. They will come to me. And then he says, And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So the first part of this verse has to do, I believe, the emphasis is on the sovereignty of God and saving his people. And the second part of the verse throws the responsibility upon, upon men. Now, when we get to this E, our election, I have told you that the election of uh, God, or the election of Scripture, I should say, uh, is definitely taught in the Bible. For example, I looked up uh, a couple of days ago and found that the word elect or election is used some 27 times directly in the Bible. And it's used some 51 times in the Bible with relatives, with words that support and point out, uh, uh, expand that particular doctrine. So there's no doubt that the, the scriptures talk about uh, election. As I hope to show you, this word elect and election can sometimes refer to Christ in Isaiah 42 verse 1. Christ is the elect one. 
And of course, anybody that's elected is elected in him. And then you have other references all throughout the scripture that have to do with some with Israel and, and uh, some with uh, many, actually most of them, that regard the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I'd like to do tonight is to pick up where I left off on this doctrine that we call depravity. I want to make sure that you understand that the doctrine of election must be true because of the nature of man. The nature of man is, according to Ephesians 2.1, dead in trespasses and sins. The Lord Jesus uh, says that he must come to us in our death and our graves, our spiritual graves, and he must give us life, he must call us, he must resurrect us. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1 says, You hath he quickened or made alive who in trespasses and sins. Well, a man that's dead, however he's dead, if he's dead physically, you know good and well that he can't respond to or obey any commandments. He would have to have life to do that. And we take that idea on over to the spiritual realm, and the person that's dead spiritually is in the same situation with regard to the Lord. I'm not here to necessarily pick on anybody, but I feel if a man says certain things, uh, that uh, if he teaches certain things, if he publicly makes certain statements, he certainly shouldn't be upset if we quote him. Would you agree with me on that? All right. The doctrine of total depravity, which we've begun to look at, teaches that men are dead in sin. Now, I want you to listen to this quote, and then I'll tell you who it is in just a minute. This quote by a well-known evangelist, and he's been teaching uh, for 40, 50 years. Okay? Here's what he says. This is a direct quote from him. The doctrine of total depravity teaches that man is incapable of initiating any move toward God. Man is not capable within himself of instituting or even desiring any action that would result in his salvation. In other words, man by himself can't even want to be saved. Without God's intervention, man will proceed early down the path toward eternal hellfire without thinking wondering about or wanting to be saved. Now, to me, that's a pretty good biblical statement. Sounds correct, but listen to the next statement that this person makes. Man is depraved and is a lost sinner, but teach that man is incapable within himself of initiating. This thing's not working, is it? It's dropping out. All right, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, so, I, I didn't think I...
Christ out up there. It's coming on now. Okay. God, eternal, say. And we have the spurious or false doctrine on sins that have cropped up throughout the churches today. Just put it right here in front, Ken, if you don't mind. Thank you. Okay. Now, who would you think might, might say that? You want to take any guesses? It's, he's still teaching today. Anybody want to hazard a guess? All right, let me give you one hint. He's, uh, he's a Pentecostal, charismatic. Well, that's Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> okay. Now, that, that comment was made in, uh, in uh, 1987. Okay? So I got it directly out of his, his mouth, out of his, uh, a booklet of his, in 1987. Now, I believe he is correct when he says this. Listen to this now. He goes on to say, in trying to deny if one teaches total depravity of man. Now, we've learned in our last two studies something about total depravity. And let me just make a comment now. Man is not absolutely depraved. That means that he could be worse. He is not as bad as he could be. Why isn't he as bad as he could be? Because he's restrained by what theologians call the common grace of God. Now, the common grace of God is also inclusive of governments and laws and all of those. When those things break down, then you begin to see what men will do. We're seeing this now in this battle over in Israel, between Israel and Hamas, where men sink lower uh, than animals. Uh, the beheading of infants and taking old people who are in wheelchairs and setting them on fire and things of that nature is inhuman. It is absolutely uh, barbaric. It is terrible. So he goes on to say this. If one teaches the total depravity of man, did I finish my statement? Absolute depravity means that we are as bad as we can be. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means the total man, his mind, his heart, his mouth. We, it's mentioned all in Romans chapter 3. From the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, he has been infected and affected by sin so that he is said to be dead in trespasses and sins. And I explained to you in the last couple of studies what we mean by dead in sin. So he says, if one teaches the total depravity of man, one must also teach unconditional election. The reason that unconditional election was brought about was because of the teaching of the total depravity of man. If man were totally depraved and had no ability whatsoever to initiate a move toward God, there'd be no means for him to come to God. There's no way he could make a move toward God or express any desire to be saved. If we start, if we start out with the doctrine of total depravity, that man has no more choice on whether or not he will be saved, 
then we must move on to the doctrine of unconditional election. Do you understand what he has said? If a person is dead, if a, Lazarus was dead, in the Gospel of John chapter 11, Lazarus was dead. He was in a grave. When Christ got there, he'd been dead how many days? Four, three or four days. Four days? Okay. The Jews had a, they had a superstition that the spirit stayed around the body for three full days trying to enter back into it. It may be why Christ didn't get there to the fourth day. He was good and dead. He was completely dead. He was so dead that when he said, take away the stone, then Martha or Mary said, by this time he's thinking. And Jesus said, did I not say unto you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And, of course, he did what? He called Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. When Lazarus was dead, that word that Christ sent to Lazarus had the power in it, the power of life, which went into Lazarus, gave him life, thus giving him the ability to respond to the command to come forth. Does that make sense to you? All right, if a person is spiritually dead, you can reason with them from the sun up to the sun down. You can try to get them to join the church. You can try to get them to walk an aisle. You can try to get them to get, be baptized. You can try to get them to raise their hand, to sign a card, to make a decision. But one thing you can't do, you cannot give them life. Only God can give life. And so Jimmy Swaggart, uh, this was before his great fall, in which he learned something about sin in himself. And I don't say that to deride him. I just simply say, and I used to say this all the time, I heard him on the radio even before I came to Tennessee, and I've been to Tennessee now for nearly 53 years. So I heard him a long time ago, and I, his emphasis then was, you need the baptism of the Holy Ghost evidence by speaking in tongues. Now that was his emphasis. Now he says the emphasis in Scripture is the gospel. He says that now. That's a lot better. <laughs> That's a lot better because the gospel is for sinners. And the gospel has to do with awakening and saving men who can't save themselves. Now let me say this before I proceed further. Every person, regardless of their theological persuasion, some may be Calvinistic, some may be Arminian, some may be Pelagian, some may be what we call semi-Pelagian. What do all these things mean? Well, they mean that some, some folks believe that when man died in sin, everything died in him but his will. And his will is not dead. And he can still choose God. He can choose God. And then some people go further. That would be the Arminian position. Some people go further. The Pelagian position would be that he can choose God on Monday and not choose God on Tuesday. He can be lost on Monday and he can be lost, uh, saved on Monday and lost on Tuesday and saved on Wednesday and lost on Thursday. That there's no security in salvation because man has to basically keep himself. God has done all he can do. He wants the best for you, but he can't do anything about it because he can't violate your will. So next time your child is crossing the street and there's an automobile coming and you see the automobile coming, don't you dare scream at them or run out there and grab them because you don't want to violate their will. You see how silly that is? Does man have a will? Of course he does. But the scripture teaches that the will of man by nature is bent against the things that are for his salvation and bent toward himself and away from the Lord. So Mr. Swaggart, at least in those days, says, if we believe in total depravity, we must of necessity move on to the doctrine of unconditional election if anybody is going to be saved. Now the reason any person does not rejoice in unconditional election is simply because 
that person has never really and truly found himself or herself to be totally depraved. But they're not alone, of course. All men are not only blind by nature, but they're self-righteous and will not need, uh, admit to their need of mercy. Now, since you're in the Gospel of John, it won't hurt us to go over a chapter or two to chapter 8. Many times we've looked at this here in, uh, at Grace Church, but let's take another look tonight. Gospel of John, chapter 8, where Jesus says in verse 31, to those Jews who believed on him, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. In other words, many people claim to be the disciples of Christ. Every believer is a disciple, a learner. That's what the word means. You shall know the truth, verse 32, and the truth will make you free. And these self-righteous Jews said in verse 33, We are Abraham's seed, and we've never been in bondage to any man. How can you say to us, you shall be made free? So how many times have I said here that you can't set a free man free? You can only set a slave free. You can't take a man that's free. A man that's just eating a steak is not interested if you're going to offer him a crystal burger. He just had a 14-ounce steak over at Outback, and he's not interested in a crystal burger. He's full and he's satisfied. A man that has plenty of water is not interested in water that you might offer them. So he says, they say to Christ, what are you talking to us about being free? We've never been in bondage. And Jesus says, verse 34, whoever commits sin is the servant. Now, I don't know how many of you have in your scripture the word servant, but the word here that should be translated bond slave, the word that's translated servant, had a different connotation in 1611, which is what I'm using, the King James Version. Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. Well, when you come into the world, you come into the world as a sinner. So that means you come into the world in bondage, enslaved to sin. He goes on to use a little analogy, verse 35. He says, the servant doesn't abide in the house forever. Servants come to work in the morning, they work during the day, and then they go home to their own quarters. But he says, the son stays in the house. If therefore, verse 36, the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And I'll tell you something that I've told our people many times. He says, I know that you are Abraham's seed. And the word seed there is the Greek term sperma, from which we get our word sperm. I know you're Abraham's physical descendants. Okay? I know that. But he goes on to say, you're not Abraham's children. Look at this. He says, verse 39. They answered and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto him, if, if you were Abraham's children. Now here he uses the word technon. Technon. Which means the spiritual children of Abraham. He said, if you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. What was Abraham noted for? Abraham what? Believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's what he was noted for. So he tells us here in verse 33, I know you are the sperma of Abraham, but he said, and he says that again in verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's sperma, but you're, you're seeking to kill me, verse 37, because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, verse 38, you do that which you've seen with your father. Well, they said, well, Abraham's our father. And he said, well, Abraham is your father in terms of sperma, but he's not your father in terms of faith. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. That's verse 39. What were the works of Abraham? Abraham believed God. 
But now, verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. They said, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus says in verse 42, if God were your father, if you were the technon of God, if you were the spiritual children of God, you'd love me. I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why don't you understand my speech, verse 43? Because you can't hear my word. You hear me talking, but you, you don't get it. You can't discern it. You don't have an understanding. You are of your father, the devil, verse 44. So I want you to understand that there's a difference for the Jews in being the seed of Abraham and being the children of Abraham. There are many people who say that they are the children of God, but they are not the children of God. They have not been set free by the grace of God. And uh, here's what I'm going to say here. We'll try to get into some of these terms, and it's this. Every person... As I said earlier, regardless of their theological slant, whether it's toward Calvinism, toward Arminianism, uh, toward uh, Pelagianism, whatever it is, every person believes in election. And every person believes in a limited atonement. And here's what I mean by that. Every person believes in election. They either believe that God elected us on the basis of what he saw we would do, which was we elected him. We elected him first, and he saw what we were going to do, and so he elected us. Limited atonement, either we limit the atonement by the will of man, or God limits it by the will of God. If Jesus Christ, and I spent a whole study on this, if Jesus Christ actually offered up an atonement, one which reconciles people to God, and he died for the entire world, then the entire world is going to be reconciled to God. The high priest of Israel went into the Holy of Holies, and he went in representing a certain people. He represented Israel. He didn't represent anybody else. If Jesus Christ offered an atonement for everybody in the world, everybody in the world is going to be saved. Now, I know this is a tough pill to swallow, but if you can stick with us in these studies, you'll see where we're going and why we have to have this. The Lord Jesus Christ, as I told you last time, he made an atonement for somebody. Now, you're in the Gospel of John. Let's go back to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Trying to pull some things together this evening. A person who's not in bondage doesn't need to be set free. And they'll even be angry for implying that they need such a thing. In, God, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Word, verse 1, and that the Word was with God and the Word was God. In verse 3, all things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. All right, we get down to verse 11. He came into his own. He came to his own family, his own people, his own nation, and his own people, nation, did not receive him. But, verse 12, as many as received him, them he gave the power. If you have power, it should be translated privilege. He gave you the power, the privilege to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, let's think about that. He says, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ were given the privilege, the power to become sons of God. How did they get that? How did they get to this position? Verse 13, whence were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Now, it couldn't be any clearer. It is not the will of man. It is not the, the uh, group that you come from. 
It is not, it doesn't have anything to do with who you're akin to, the blood. It has to do with God. It is God who saves people, and he does it all by himself. He doesn't have to have us to help him. He doesn't choose us because he saw we would choose him, but we choose him because he chose us. All right, let's see how far we can get in this. I hope, I hope you can understand me. Sorry about all the, other, the problems here with this uh, these microphone, but let's go to Romans chapter 9 in the time we have left. Romans chapter 9. I wanted to open up some of these terms, translated election, foreknowledge, and so on, and I'll have to do that next time. Romans chapter 9. Nine. Let me address this and also address what Paul addresses, and that is some of the objections to this doctrine of election. We say that the Bible teaches unconditional election. Unconditional election. What does that mean? It means that there were no conditions to be met. How is that? Why, why were there no conditions to be met? Because the Bible teaches that the election of God took place before the foundation of the world. There were no conditions to be met by any man because there wasn't any man to meet any conditions. Unconditional is the term used to describe the kind of election set forth in Scripture. The time it took place was before the foundation of the world. We looked uh, last Sunday, or the Sunday before, at Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8. We saw there that those verses speak of Christ as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now, why would you have a lamb before the foundation of the world? Because God knew that man was going to fall in sin. And he provided a Savior even before man fell. And the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We are told in 2 Timothy 1.9 that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace given to us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. We are told in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. There are many passages like that uh, throughout Scripture. When we get to Romans 9, I want to, as I have begun, uh, have you turn to this chapter I want you to know that unconditional election has nothing to do with time in the sense that men and women will be saved whether they come to faith or not. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. I believe that justification uh, in time is conditional. But I do not believe that election is. Election is unconditional. Now hold your horses for just a minute. <laughs> election, the basis for election is, is it based upon some action that God foresaw in us and he saw we would believe and then he elected us? Some reaction, some response, some activity of the elect? No, that would be conditional election. That would be electing us, conditioned upon what he saw we would do. Unconditional means there's not a condition to be met by us which would induce God to choose us. Now look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> this is the word of promise, verse 9. This is the word of promise. I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Right, he's talking about Abraham now. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was nearly 100 years old, and Sarah was about 90. Now, you tell me, tell me the possibility of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a child. 
Tell me the possibility. There is no possibility. It would take a miracle, wouldn't it? That's what he's saying about election. He's saying everybody that's saved is a miracle. Now, he says, not only this, verse 10, but when Rebekah had conceived by Isaac. Now, Isaac is the son of Abraham, the son that was born to Sarah and Abraham when he was 100 or 99. Well, when he was born, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Watch this now, verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said to her, the older, the elder, shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, it is not of him that runs, but it is of God that shows mercy. All right, now, is election, is God choosing us, is God saving us based upon some action he has foreseen in us? No, that's conditional election. Unconditional, again, means there's not a condition to be met by us which induces God to choose us. Now, these verses 10 through 13, and especially verse 15, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now, he's, he's pivoting this, he's encasing this in the argument about Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael. Who usually gets the birthright blessing? The oldest boy. Did you know, <laughs> I can't get off on this tonight because we don't have time, but did you know all of this stuff going on in Israel right now? Did you know that the Arab people, the people that are 95% that are of them are Muslims, do you know that they believe that the Jews lied about this birthright blessing stuff? That's why they're fighting. They're saying, listen, Ishmael was the firstborn, not Isaac. And the Jews lied when they said that God gave the birthright blessing to Isaac. And then he said, when it gets to Jacob and Esau, it's the same thing. They said uh, Esau was born first, but he wasn't given the birthright blessing. Jacob was. And they're saying the Jews lied about that, that really the birthright blessing went to the people that we would call the, the Arab people. Uh, most of them today are are Muslims. Well, the birthright blessing was given to the youngest boy based solely on the decision of God because it says right here in verse 11 that the children had not even been born. The children hadn't been born when God made this decision and they hadn't done any good or evil. So he didn't choose one of them because he was good and reject the other one because he was evil because they hadn't done any good or any evil. It was before they were born. That's very, very clear. So what shall we say then in verse 14? Is God unrighteous? Okay, well, first of all, let's settle this. Does anybody deserve salvation? Not according to the Scripture. Nobody deserves salvation. Those who are saved can only be saved by the grace of God. So I am required by the Lord to preach and to teach what the Bible says and not what I would like for it to say. What about objections to this doctrine? This doctrine is in verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God. All right, now let me make this case and try to make it as briefly as I can with the time 
left that we have. <clears throat> this objection that Paul brings up here in verse 14 would make no sense at all if Paul were not teaching what most people would think is unfair. He says that God determined who would be saved and he says that you are going to say to me then that's not fair. Let's go down to verse 19. You will say to me, why does God find fault who has resisted his will? So in verse 14, he says, he raises this objection. Is there unrighteousness with God? Why would that objection be raised? That objection would not be raised if we believed that God looked down and saw who was going to believe, and then he chose those that he knew would believe. He chose them because they first chose him. That objection in verse 14 wouldn't make any sense. There's no reason to put an objection there. Who would object to that? Who would object to say, well, God saw that I would choose him, and so he chose me? There wouldn't be any objection to that, would there? I don't think so. I don't think there'd be any objection. So that very objection shows that what we think Paul is teaching is what he is teaching. He anticipated, therefore, what many today believe, Arminian or semi-Pelagian views, uh, that God would be charged with unrighteousness if the decision rested solely with him. He wouldn't be charged with unrighteousness, but if he doesn't give us any explanation as to why he made the decisions he made, people are charging God with unrighteousness. And he's not saying that's not fair. All right. I'm trying to hurry. If he chose or rejected based upon our, our decision, how could we charge him with unfairness? We couldn't. Paul then amplifies what he is teaching in verse 15. What is the basis of mercy? Is it the will of man or the will of God? Verse 15. I will have, he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it is not of him that wills. It's not of him that works, that runs. It's of God that shows mercy. He's underscoring what he's already said. So does it look like the will of man makes the difference or the will of God makes the difference? Does it look like this salvation is conditioned, this election is conditioned upon the will of man and those who meet certain conditions? No. If God chooses some and not others, is injustice done? Now, we're going we're gonna to close out here. I hope I haven't, I'm, I, I, uh, hope I haven't uh, confused you. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Trying to speak loud enough so you can all uh, hear. Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 20. <clears throat> now, the first 15 verses of this chapter <clears throat> is a story or a parable that the Lord told about a man that went out early in the morning, verse 1, to hire people to work in his vineyard. Okay? He went out about 6 in the morning, and, and he agreed with some people, verse 2, for a penny a day, and he sent them out in his vineyard to work. The Jewish day starts at 6 in the morning. Then it says in verse 3, he went out on the third hour. That would be what time? It would be 9 o'clock in the morning. He went out at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he saw other people standing in the marketplace, and he said, you go into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I'll give you, and they went their way. Then in verse 5, he went out the sixth hour. What time would that be? Sixth hour would be 12 noon. And then he went out the ninth hour. That would be 3 in the afternoon. So he went at 6 in the morning, 9 in the morning, 12 noon, and 3 in the afternoon. And look at this now, verse 6. And the 11th hour, that would be 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he went out 
and he found others standing idle. And he said, why are you standing here idle? I said, because nobody's hired us. Verse 7, he said, you go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you'll receive. So at the end of the day, he calls them in to pay them, verse 8, and to give them their hire. And he began with the last. He started with those that came to work at 5 in the afternoon. <laughs> and he gave them a penny. He gave them a penny. But that, that's what he promised the people that started at 6 in the morning. Okay? So when, he, when the first came, verse 10, they supposed they should have received more, but they each one received a penny. And if you go back and read, that's what they agreed to go out to work for. They agreed to work that day for a penny. You follow me? So when they had received it, verse 11, they began to murmur against the good man, the good man of the house. And they said, these last ones worked only one hour in verse 12. They did work but an hour. And you've made them equal to us. And we've borne the burden in the heat of the day. And he said, friend, verse 13, I do thee no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a penny? Did you not agree? If it's $500, you agreed for $500, didn't you? So these guys that came out at 5 o'clock, I gave them $500 too. Take that which is yours, verse 14, go your way, and I will give unto this last even unto thee. Now watch this. What, this is Jesus telling this story, verse 15. Is it not lawful? Have I done anything illegal or unlawful? Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is this not my field? Uh, did, didn't I hire all these people? Isn't this my money? Can I give each one of them what I want to give them? Watch this now. Is your eye evil? Verse 15. Is your eye evil because I am good? Now I want you to think about this parable and think about these things in connection with it. If God chooses some and not others, is any injustice done? Those who perish in their sins, are they treated unjustly or are they getting what they deserve? Those who do not perish, are they treated unjustly? Is anyone treated unjustly? No, no one receives injustice. If the governor of the state of Tennessee pardons a man in prison, is he obligated by any law or any rule of justice to pardon another? Is he obligated to pardon everyone? Paul says here in Romans 9 that there's no injustice toward Esau or Jacob. It was all according to the purpose of God. It cannot be then that God sees who is willing or who works according to what he sees and chooses them on that basis. I don't know why he called me. I know this, it could not have been because he saw some good in me because the Bible is clear, there's none good, no, not one. Romans chapter 3. If he chose me because of something in me or because of something I did, it wouldn't be grace. Saul of Tarsus was a murderer. He held the cloaks of men who stoned Stephen to death. <clears throat> but God told Ananias, Ananias is a man down here praying, and he's had a vision, and he's seen a vision of a man coming here to him and laying his hands on him and recovering his sight and telling him what the gospel is. And Ananias said, yeah, I've heard of him. Ananias was afraid of him. He said, I've heard of him. Uh, he said, he's, he's been putting Christians in 
prison and consenting to their death and everything else. And the Lord said, well, he's, he's been humbled down now. You're going down there and talk to him. And when you walk in, in there, you can call him brother. And he walked in, he called him brother, brother Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you has chosen you, he says, your chosen vessel to preach the gospel in these parts of the world. When God called Paul the apostle, Paul says that he made an example of him. He used him as an illustration of his sovereign grace, not only in his sovereign will, but in, in his great mercy. The scriptures are replete with the teaching that man is absolutely depraved, and if man perishes in his sins, no injustice is done. If God chooses to save, and by the way, I have told you this before, there's no reason for us to believe that election means a little tiny group of people. The Bible very clearly says that there's a number which no man can number of every kindred, every tribe, every generation. The Lord has chosen a lot of people, but remember this. It's not ours to question him. It's ours to trust him. Do you trust him? He's not going to do wrong. He's going to do right. Now, I'm going to offer you tonight. I don't even know if we're still on the Internet, if this is going to get on the Internet. I may have to do it. I had uh, a good lesson prepared, and I kind of skipped around a little bit because we've had some problems here. But I'm going to offer you this, this book absolutely free. It's called Definite Atonement. It's by... Dr. Gary Long, who, who you, most of you know Gary. He was here for several years. I've known him for over 40 years. And you're free to take this book called Definite Atonement. Just come up here and get you one when it's over. And for those of you watching by the Internet, if you will write to us and let us know that you want a copy, we'll send it to you. You're not obligated to send any money. We don't sell merchandise. We don't sell books. Freely you have received, freely we give. May the Lord add his blessings on the teaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you and call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Help us that we might bow before even that which we don't understand. And much of it, Lord, we don't understand. We don't understand why you saved us. We don't understand why you've brought us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you, we know that you have. And we can say that we're saved strictly by grace, not by our will, not by our works, not by anything we have done or said, but we're saved by your sovereign grace. We thank you for Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for your spirit that enlightened us and called us. We thank you for your word by which we learn of the great salvation wherewith we have been saved. Sanctify it to our hearts. Use us for your glory in these days. We ask in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.